This is IAQ Radio, indoor air quality radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome. It's episode 478 of IAQ Radio. It's Friday, September 22nd, 2017, and after a little bit of uh, scrambling, we pulled it all together here. This week, uh, I want to welcome back Dr. Brandon Bohr, now with Purdue, and Dr. Yella Laverge of the University of Ghent in Belgium. Uh, looking forward to a great talk. They put together a nice paper here in building an environment called Human Exposure to Indoor Air Pollutants in Sleep Microenvironments, a Literature Review. And I tell you, I've been fascinated reading this over. It's, you know, some papers are just kind of... Uh, you know, very narrow and, and focused on a specific thing. When they do these literature reviews, you get a lot more of a broad sense of the topic. So I'm really looking forward to the discussion today. But before we go there, let's thank our marquee sponsors. IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. It's the 2017 Healthy Building Summit, November 2nd through the 4th at Seven Springs Mountain Resort in the gorgeous Laurel Highlands of southwestern Pennsylvania. Join industry leaders and educators as they discuss research to practice, navigating changing industries. It's two and a half days of IEQ, remediation, building science, and home performance. Marquee sponsors include John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Particles Plus, count on us. Exhibitors are AEML Microbiology Laboratories, True Tech Tools, Prism Analytical Technologies, FiberLock Technologies. Register now at HealthyBuildingsSummit.com or call 814-754-4808. That's HealthyBuildingsSummit.com or call 814-754-4808. Okay, please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services or products and We've got continuing education credits available. Email, email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. And the Z-Man is off today for the Rosh Hashanah holiday. And uh, today's IAQ radio trivia question I'm going to handle. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Okay, like I say, the Z-Man is off, but uh, first I want to congratulate Doug Conan, Aerotech Environmental, Dayton, Ohio. He had the first correct answer to last week's trivia question. Why do hurricanes have women's names? 
by doing this, the National Weather Service was mimicking the habit of naval meteorologists who named the storms after women, much as ships at sea were traditionally named for women. In 1979, the system was revised again to include both female and male hurricane names. This week's question is, what is the primary cause of sleep disruption for approximately 90 million American adults? So text in or email in your answers and we'll get you out a nice prize. All right, today's guests are going to be talking about the human exposure to the indoor air pollutants in sleep microenvironments, a literature review. We've got Dr. Brandon Bohr, an assistant professor at the Lau School of Civil Engineering at Purdue University. His research group is focused on understanding the dynamics of airborne particles and aerosols in buildings and human exposure to indoor air pollution. And then we've got Dr. Yellow Laverge. He's the, he got his engineering degree and a master's from Ghent in 2007, and um, he's worked part-time there as an employee in Antwerp. And then he uh, became a full-time researcher and Ph.D. candidate in uh, Building Physics, Construction, and Building Services Research Group at the Department of Architecture and Urban Planning at Ghent University. In 2011, he got his master's degree in law from the same university. He was a part-time building physics lecturer at the Cajo Sint Leven Ghent for the 2011 spring semester. And with the support of an FWO grant, he was the visiting scholar at the University of Texas at Austin during the summer of 2011. I'm assuming that's where him and Brandon met. And his dissertation was entitled Design Strategies for Residential Ventilation Systems. He got his Ph.D. in 2013. Okay, let's see if we've got the gentleman on the line. Hello, Brandon. Do we have you on the line? Hello. Hi, Joe. How are you? All right. Gentlemen, great to have you. I'm going to jump right into it. Um, first, let's let's introduce uh, Dr. Bohr was on the show a while back with um, with Rich Corsi, and we actually started talking a little bit about this topic. Then it got me interested. We followed up with a few other shows, and I'm looking forward to a more detailed discussion today. Uh, but first, tell us a little bit about the University of Ghent and uh, what they're known for, and then maybe how you got involved in the indoor air quality world. Um, okay, so Ghent University is basically um, one of the two major universities in, in Belgium. Um, there's Ghent and there's Leuven, and we're a full university, so we cover everything from um, you know social science over literature to engineering and medicine. Uh, and um, uh, the most known uh, parts of, of uh, the research departments are reproductive science and um, um, gene engineering. Um, and so uh, IAQ is uh, in our university part of uh, the building science research group that is part of the architecture school. Um, we have a architectural engineering program that is uh, a bit of a combination of um, uh, civil engineering and uh, traditional architecture. Um, and I'm working in that department. And so uh, interest in IAQ came from, uh, I started out as a mechanical engineer working on ventilation systems. And of course, those have a goal of producing a nice indoor 
environments, and, and uh, that was my route into IAQ, let's say. And I've noticed in your bio you have also a law degree. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm a part-time uh, construction law lawyer, uh, and, and I also teach construction law to our civil engineering and uh, um, architecture students. Oh, very interesting. Okay, and um, let's go with, with Dr. Bohr. Um, the last time we had you on, you know, we were talking about some research you had done, and um, we always try and like to get these, you know, research to practice. And, and that one focused on how particles become airborne, exposure and pollutant transport dynamics. Uh, you know, you've, you've done a lot of work in, in this area, and we also talked to you a little bit about the sleep microenvironment. And I was wondering if you could update listeners and maybe tell them, you know, what what got you and, and Dr. LaVerge interested in this literature review on sleep microenvironments? I think it was early on when I was at the University of Texas. Uh, Professor Rich Corsi pointed out that this was an area in the indoor air quality field that there wasn't that much research in. And he talked about the flame retardants in the mattresses, and, and I, I found it quite interesting. And then, you know, doing more research into it and just seeing that, you know, we spend just so much time sleeping, and we really don't know so much about the dynamics of these emission sources within the sleep microenvironment and how they affect our exposures, you know, what are the effects on health and sleep quality. Uh, so I found that there's a lot of research areas to explore, and and, you know, I focused some, quite a bit on, on the early life exposures while sleeping, so for infants and crib mattresses. And, yeah, I think it was it's been an interesting journey, and, and we've done some, Yella and I and others have published some interesting work on this topic over the past five years or so. So, yeah. Now, the, the literature review, how do you... You know, how do you make sure you've got everything in there? I mean, the newer stuff I would imagine is, you know, Internet-based, but was did you find any older stuff? Do you have to go to the university library system? Or how, tell listeners a little bit about how you do a literature review. Yeah, that's a good question. So I would say nowadays we do most of the – most of our searching for papers through online – uh, directories like Science Direct, the Web of Science, and, and Google Scholar. And there you can in, input different keywords. So you can put sleep, sleep and flame retardants, sleep and dust mites, and so on and so forth. And just go through and compile all of these papers and, and make it, you know, create essentially a large database of, of literature on that topic. And then try to organize it into different areas like we did in this this literature review that we just published and to break it down into something that is organized and that hopefully tells a, a useful story and summarizes what's been done. And I think by doing that, then we could hopefully better understand what needs to be done moving forward. Uh, yep. It, for the older stuff, um, you're right. It's much, much more difficult to find older papers um, online. Um, but what you do find in the oldest things that you have online, there's usually references to even older stuff. So that's 
usually a way to try and find um, things that are harder to find online. And then, then um, of course, like uh, Brandon mentioned, um, part of, of how we came into this, this um, research topic was by talking to uh, Dr. Corsi, for example, who has a good memory. So that also helps. Um, <laughs> so yeah, uh, for recent things, it, it's convenient to do a so, uh, thing like this. The, the problem there is that you usually end up with massive amounts of papers that you then need to sift through. But for the older things, it's, uh, it's becoming an issue to, to actually still find those if they're not cataloged um, nicely. Well, you know, when, when you were going through all these papers, did you notice any pattern with respect to when, you know, on a time frame, when did you find the most research had been done? Is it older stuff? Is it more current? Is it, you know, did it match up with something that occurred, like a change in the type of bedding that people used? Or was it more uh, focused in different parts of the world as opposed to others? Any patterns like that that you noticed? Uh, in regard to, we have a large table summarizing studies that have published data on the biological composition of mattress dust. And there was a lot of literature in that, and predominantly from Europe. And we started in the late 90s, and there's for sure studies before that. Uh, but a, a lot in, in European countries, some in the United States, some in Australia, East Asia. Uh, in regard to chemical contaminants in mattresses and their emissions, uh, the earliest study I found was in the late 90s and not really much before that. So that, that was a newer area. But I would say more on the biological side and the mattress stuff, that's a little bit older. There's more history in that domain. Uh, and many of those studies tried to figure out what was in the dust and try to link that to some sort of health or respiratory outcome in children or adults. Dr. LaVerge, anything you want to add? Um, well, um, the, the, the thing to realize about this is that um, we try to bring together um, pockets of research that kind of had their own life. Like uh, Brandon mentioned, there, there's um, some work that really focuses on um, you know, people with allergic reactions going into their bedrooms, collecting some dust and trying to find something out. Um, there's some research about emissions from the materials of mattresses. Um, and I, I think the value in um, the paper that we have now is that we bring that together to describe the conditions in a sleeping environment. And therefore, um, yeah, lots of it is, is recent literature. Uh, well, recent if you can call late 90s still recent. Uh, Depends on your perspective, I guess. Uh, um, but um, yeah, it, it's uh, it's um, topics that that have their own life, let's say, uh, but that don't really interconnect a lot. And and so uh, what we're trying to do here is uh, pull these things together and establish a, a research field around. Um, you know, we really should think about indoor air quality in bedrooms specifically. 
like Brandon mentioned, because we spend so much time there. Um, and, and that is both the value and other also the difficulty of doing a literature review like this because it's it's different research fields, let's say. You know, when I looked the paper over, I, I realized, you know, I've been thinking about this for years. As, as someone that does some indoor air quality consulting and talks about it all the time, you know, when you think about it, we spend basically a third of our lives in bed, um, you know, of the 90% of the time we spend indoors, um, maybe even more than a third of it's in bed because we're not always sleeping in bed. And you, you point that out in the paper as well. But, but I didn't think about some of the complexities that your paper helped me understand a little bit better. And let me just throw one example out. Not everyone sleeps on the same type of mattress or the same even type of surface in general. You know, you've got just the first, the difficulty of doing an assessment of exposure while people are sleeping. That makes it, that's tough. But then you've got the different types of mattresses and pillows out there. And I never thought about this. You've got the spring type mattresses. Then you've got the foam type. You've got the water beds. You've got, and then there's different types of foam, there's different combinations, there's different types of materials from your natural materials that people use the, to those that are manufactured in a, in a plant. Um, so it's a very complex topic, and I think you guys laid it out real well, um, starting with the sleep exposure characteristics. And, and the first thing you talked about was exposure pathways, and one I don't think a lot of people think about is the dermal exposure. Um, and that was very interesting to me. I wondered if, if, if you guys could maybe comment on the complexity of sleep environments and, and maybe a little bit on the complexity of trying to assess someone's exposure while they're sleeping. Yeah, that's, mm -hmm. that's a very good point. And in regard to exposure assessment while sleeping, a lot of these studies, they try to use what's in the dust, the concentration of, you know, dust mites or bacteria or fungi or even some semi-volatile organic compounds like organophosphates in the dust and kind of use that as an exposure surrogate. Uh, there's very, very little information on field measurements where they've actually tried to measure in situ in the breathing zone of a sleeping person in their home and actually try to figure out what are these concentrations of these contaminants, if they're particulate, what are their size distributions, and so forth. So I think that's something that's a bit challenging because it's a little bit invasive. It's much easier just to go and collect dust. Now the question is how useful is all this mattress dust data that we have in predicting inhalation exposures? I think that there is you know, a bit of a challenge in relating the two. In regard to the dermal exposure, I think there's been a lot of research in our field, and you had some some colleagues like Glenn Morrison uh, that have done on IAQ radio, radio that have done a lot of research on thermal exposures to a number of different semi-volatile organic compounds. And I think this is especially important for the sleep microenvironment, especially for infants, uh, because we found that the, the crib mattress cover is really full of these phthalates and, and other types of plasticizers. So, so the small child that's sleeping on that mattress for 12 plus hours a day, they have their entire skin that is exposed, and the concentrations of these 
contaminants are quite high right above the mattress surface. They may be in direct physical contact between their skin and that mattress cover. So I think the potential for dermal exposures, especially among infants and children with these flame retardant and plasticizer laden mattress materials could be quite significant. And I don't think anybody's explicitly studied that, uh, that, I'm, yeah. that I'm aware of. And, and other things that, that are typical complexities of a sleep environment that, that we also touch on, on in the paper and that relate to this are, um, for example, the, the covers that Brandon mentioned, um, they protect you from emissions from the mattress, um, which is uh, one of the outcomes of a really nice project that, that Brandon did. But on the other hand, they're full of flame, or they could be full of flame retardants and so you get an extra exposure to that and then you sleep on top of that and you cover yourself with you know uh, duvets or, or blankets which creates a sealed pocket which increases the concentration just around your body um, and then uh, your uh, sleep position also um, influences the way that concentration just above the mattress or around you then gets into your breathing zone so it's a uh, like you mentioned joe it's a it's a complex environment that is uh, often underestimated because most iaq research focuses on uh, more active environments like office environments uh, who are also complex but have a very different nature from uh, a sleep environment so it's not that straightforward to just transpose whatever findings you have for an office environment to a sleeping environment. And yeah, this is uh, the, the, the research that, that we're now trying to come up with to elucidate that. You also discuss doing um, breathing zone, you know, um, breathing, breathing zone samples and how difficult that can be especially when you're in a, you know, in a sleep environment, you know, you've got the issue of noise, you, you've got the issue of getting that sampler, whatever type of sampler it may be, close to the breathing zone, because like uh, one of you just mentioned, different people sleep on, you know, in different ways, some with the covers up over their head, others with that, maybe some people sleep on their stomach, others on their back, others on their side. How have researchers tried to um, modify the sampling methods used to try and get good, accurate breathing zone assessments of what people are exposed to while they're sleeping. Well, what one thing Yella did was the uh, using a, a mannequin, a thermal mannequin, rather than having an actual person do simulated experiments in a chamber with a, a breathing, sleeping mannequin. And, and I think Yella could talk more about that. Yeah, yeah. So like you said, it's very hard to go into people's bedrooms and have samples really from their breathing zone in a sleep environment. So um, a way to get around that and to get some insight into how the concentration in this breathing zone could be different from the one that you measure like in a more central location in the bedroom um, is why we set up the, these uh, lab experiments using a thermal mannequin because Mannequins don't really mind about the noise and, and all of the tubes running around them. Um, so that's a way to approach that. Uh, another way is uh, Brandon did some uh, experiments where um, they uh, just performed a number of movements uh, 
and try to capture the impact of that. Um, so that was with real people, but not really sleeping, just doing movements that might occur during sleep. That's a, another way to approach it. But as far as I'm aware, I, I, I didn't see any papers that mentioned to do real life measurements um, in the breathing zone in real sleep conditions so far. Um, I, I think we still need to have a, a bit of a development on the on the uh, monitoring side to, to be able to do that correctly, let's say. You know, we, we like to focus on research to practice and, and I find that can be tough in this environment, you know, because of the things you guys just mentioned, but also because, you know, we just don't always know um, how long people spend in their bed, you know, what type of things they do. And, and lately I've been doing more, you know, evaluation of sleeping environments by kind of fluffing up the, the bedding or the pillows or whatever. We've, we've been using a, an instrument called the Instascope that can do a pretty quick evaluation. And I was surprised how much, uh, how often actually we find the sleep environment has elevated levels of at least fungi. And somewhere in this paper, and I can't find it at the moment, I read somewhere that, I don't know whether it was fungi or dust mite or something, that, that the exposure level, estimated exposure level, could be as much as 30 times higher than um, than maybe just if you're sitting in a room. or an in, Did I get that right? Do you guys remember that? Yeah, that, that was from the experiments that uh, Brandon mentioned where we used thermal mannequins. And in uh, the situation where you have uh, um, a source coming from the mattress, so that could be fungi or some chemical pollutant that is emitted from the, from the mattress itself, and you sleep on that with your head under the covers, like you mentioned, then you create a basically a lightly sealed bag around yourself that traps all of this emission. And in that case, you get a concentration in your breathing zone that is 30 times higher than uh, what you would measure in the middle of the room uh, in that same situation. I see. I, I, that's fascinating. When you think about it, and it was, I believe there was 10 to 30 times I remember for some reason. So you're talking an order of magnitude higher exposures uh, mm -hmm. in the sleep environment. So I don't, I don't think indoor environmental quality investigators think about that as much as maybe we should. Yeah, I think it's what? a really valid point. <laughs> I share well, your concern me, in that regard. I want to get you guys to, you know, I know you didn't, do this to try and necessarily answer a whole lot of questions other than what, you know, what is out there? Where, what do we have? What do we know? And what do we need to know? But what struck me as a difficult question, I'm going to pose it to both of you and see if you have an answer for me. I, I noticed that spring type mattresses and correct me if I'm wrong, seem to accumulate more uh, fungi, bacteria, dust mite, etc. than the foam type. But on the other hand, the foam type emit more VOCs, semi-VOCs, etc. Um, so you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, what do you guys recommend? You know, what do you sleep on? Yeah. What, what do you recommend? I think that's a 
challenging question to answer, and I and there's for sure uh, a number of commercially available mattresses out there that you can buy that cost several thousand dollars that are uh, at least marketed as being free of volatile organic compounds and flame retardants and phthalates and so forth, but they're just quite expensive that a lot of people can't afford them. Uh, and the same goes for the crib mattresses as well, these polyurethane-based crib mattresses. So I, I think a lot of it comes down to what you can afford. And, you know, there are products and, and companies that go and make an effort to get their products certified as being low VOC emitting through GreenGuard and, and other avenues. And I think that's a positive sign. And if you are trying to purchase a mattress, that's something that I certainly look for. And also those labeling schemes typically will report if the product contains a chemical flame retardant or, or a plasticizer. I think that's a starting point, but there are many products out there that don't go through those avenues. They're not certified. There's no emissions data available for the consumer, and it's hard to make a choice if you're just going to the mattress shop around the corner. Uh, you know, how much flame retardants are in that product? You know, you probably don't know that the person selling you the product doesn't know. Um, yeah, it's a bit of a challenge, I would say. I think that that's actually more of a general problem related to mattresses um, because in Belgium we uh, just had a, um, a consumer uh, reports coming out um, that did uh, you know comparative testing of different mattresses and uh, they came to levels of quality not only related to pollutants but in general um, that were very similar between $500 mattresses and $5,000 mattresses. So it's it, like Brandon is saying that there's a lack of information that is available, but something else that I would like to uh, mention is that your mattress is one thing. Um, the way you use it is something else that also has a very strong influence. Um, again, uh, Brandon did some really nice work showing that um, Regular cleaning um, of your uh, mattress covers helps a lot to reduce uh, mattress dust loading. Um, so the the number of the amount of dust is is much lower. Um, like I said, sleeping with your head under the covers or not has a big influence. Um, so there's a yeah a, a number of things that you can do in use that are not related to uh, what type of mattress that you have that, that can also have a big impact on, on your exposure during sleep. You know, Dr. Laverge, you read my mind, and after halftime, I want to um, talk a little bit more about that topic. So we'll be back in uh, 90 seconds with the second half of our discussion. We've got Dr. Brandon Bohr. Dr. Yellow LaVerge, and uh, interesting topic, the sleep microenvironment, a literature review. IAQ Radio would like to thank our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them, wolfsense.com. IAQ marquee sponsors are 
John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Okay, we're back. We've got the second half of our interview. Dr. Brandon Board, Dr. Yellow LaVerge and um, Dr. Bohr, quick, you know, before the break, we were talking a little bit about maintenance of the bedding. And I think that's, you know, something that not a lot of people think about. We we get recommendations for, for instance, when we have dust mite allergens or allergies that, you know, people should wash in hot water and they should cover their uh, mattress and their pillows with these um uh, coverings that help to keep that dust mite uh, allergen from, you know, being inhaled. But um, you did, a, before the break, we were talking about some work you did on, on maintenance of, um, of mattresses. First, tell listeners a little bit about how to maintain their mattress properly, at least from what you've learned. Uh, were you using a HEPA vacuum? Were you vacuuming the top of the mattress? Was it the, the cover on the mattress? Uh, tell listeners a little bit about that, if you would. Yeah, so what we did is almost kind of simulated what you would do if you did vacuum. So expose the mattress, or really the bed sheets on top of the mattress, to different, different levels of dust, or different amounts of dust that we deposited onto that sheet. And we found that the more dust that's on there, the more dust you're going to inhale. It's, it's quite simple relationship. Uh, and that amount of dust, and studies have shown, we studied this in the literature review, you know, if you're frequently vacuuming your mattress and washing your sheets, that reduces the amount of dust available to be stirred up into the air. That's a very effective strategy to minimize exposures to whatever is in that dust, the biological material, the dust might fecal pellets, and so forth. Uh, then we also did a study or a set of experiments where we put the dust beneath the pillow cover. And this was like a 220 thread count pillow cover, something of that nature. And we found that those particles, these sub 10 micron particles, quite readily pass through that cover. So that, you know, goes into the, or creates the question, that, okay, you may wash the sheets, you know, your pillow cover, your bed sheets. Uh, but if there's a lot of particle deposits beneath that, that stuff can still penetrate through these pretty wide pores in the sheets, get airborne, and then you can be exposed. So that can be handled with vacuuming, possibly washing your pillow itself. Some pillows you can wash, others you can't. Uh, yeah, so frequent vacuuming of your mattress is, is a practical recommendation, the same for the pillow washing your bed sheets, anything you do to reduce the amount of particulates that are on the surface that can come off is an effective strategy to reduce exposures. I'm curious with respect to the age of a mattress or a pillow, Was did you find any research on how much more um, biological and or other 
contamination is, is present in either mattresses or pillows as they get older. And, and after looking at that, is there a recommendation with respect to how often we should buy new pillows or new mattresses or was there anything on flipping over the mattress and, and did that help with respect to some of the exposures? I'm not too familiar with literature on on that, like the, how often you should replace the pillow. Uh, for sure, that pillow will require a good amount of moisture over its use. I mean, even just as you get into the bed and, and so forth, and it creates a very nice environment for all these, you know, the fungi and the dust mites to thrive. Uh, so that's certainly a concern over an extended period of time in terms of accumulation of unwanted stuff in there. Uh, but I'm not familiar with studies that looked at flipping the mattress, uh, replacing the pillow, how often that should be done. Uh, okay. And then until you do, um, Dr. Bohr, I want to ask you a couple questions. I noticed, you know, I went down through this list of um, papers that, you guys find, I, I don't know if there was maybe a couple hundred of them here, but uh, quite a few papers. I noticed a few on things like um, studies that examine the impact of home remediation interventions on lowering allergen levels in low-income households. And I'm wondering um, if, if you find any kind of pattern within those kind of papers. Did home remediation, and, and, and you know, obviously that's kind of got to be defined what is home remediation did it seem to help it looked like in some of these studies this was a study in alabama from 2000 they looked at levels of various allergens in the mattress dust before and after this home intervention that took place and it looked like it did effectively reduce the the concentrations of the, the dust mite in the mattress i think one example was 235 micrograms of dust mite allergen per milligram of mattress dust before the intervention, and it reduced it down to 16. So that, that seemed to be an effective way to take care of dust mite levels. I, I think that was, actually was published a while back. I don't know if there's been any more work in that area, specifically looking at mattresses. Yeah, there was another one on um, measured house dust mite and mold spore concentration before and after installation of windows and central uh, heating yes, systems in Germany. from yeah. Dresden, Germany. Yes, that's right below. Yeah, that also showed a reduction too in, in a number of the for a number of the fungal species. There's Cladosporum that went from 130 to 60 colony forming units per gram of mattress dust. So. So two studies from a while back seem to seem to show that this is an effective way to take care of dust mites and, and certain mold species. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. What kind of things kind of stood out to you? Was there anything that surprised you? Any key takeaways you'd like to relate to listeners? Uh, what I would say is probably the un uniqueness of this microenvironment within the home and we have a nice figure out the source proximity effect that we call it uh, because of the body is in such close proximity and intimate physical contact with for such a long period of time I think that's something that's quite unique to this to the bedroom and 
It has important implications for the emissions and exposures to these different pollutants. There's not really any other environment where you're just laying on something for such a long period of time, you know, each day repeatedly. You know, you get back into your same bed and you're exposed to whatever may be in there. Yeah. One thing, hi, I'm back, by the way, I hope. Good. <laughs> so, I would first like to emphasize that uh, it was a lot of work and most of it has been done by Brandon, so all uh, uh, applause should go to him for that. Um, uh, but what I think um, we were able to lay out here is that um, there's a uh, we focused on the mechanics, let's say, um, but there's still uh, a lack of a good understanding of um, if there is a different impact on humans during when they are exposed during sleep, so either on their sleep itself or because uh, you know their metabolism is slowed down and this could have a different impact than when they would be awake. So that is still an area that is, in my opinion, a bit uncharted and that, that deserves some attention uh, in, in the near future. Okay. I just want to add, another interesting finding was the amount of time spent sleeping and how it varies by country. Oh, yeah. And in, that, in some countries, it's around eight hours, and others, it's nine hours per day. Uh, in China, one set of data showed that it was about nine hours per day, and in others, it's down. In Spain, it's, yeah. or Estonia, it was 8.4 hours a day. So I thought that was quite interesting, that there's this you know, geographical and cultural element. And also that it's changing over time. For example, if you go back to sleep, uh, well, time use surveys in the U.S. from the, the 60s, it was, you know, closer to nine hours. And then for every decade you move closer to now, it, it, it really drops off. People are just busier. I don't know. They work more, I guess. But also uh, it's <laughs> they're just more active. But uh, our way of life seems to have a, a measurable impact on how we sleep. And that, that's also very interesting. I was a little surprised to see that as we age, we also sleep longer. I, I didn't, I, I thought it was the opposite that, you know, when people got a little older, they didn't sleep as long, they, you know, but apparently as we age, we sleep longer too. Yeah, so it looks like around 50 years of age, sleeping does start to go up with age. Uh, but for sure, you know, the population that, you know, maybe we can argue is most of interest and we're most concerned about our infants because they're, they're in the bed or sleeping in their crib for 12, 14 hours every day. And that's just a substantial part of their, of their life where these exposures are, are critically important. Yeah. And the, the, well, we're going a bit beyond the, 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 uh, the numbers as such, but for the older, uh, population, um, the, this comes from time use surveys, so that includes nap activities. So it's maybe not entirely the same as you know the just get into your bed, get your eight hours of sleep, and then uh, get up again. So yeah, there is some interesting diversity um, over the course of a of a normal life with uh, regards to to how you sleep. And like Brandon mentioned, the young children have huge amounts of sleep, so that, that's basically their whole life. Uh, so we should be really uh, focusing on that. 
you know, before we'd lost you there for a minute, um, Dr. Laverge, I started to ask a question about ventilation during sleep. I mentioned we had Nuno Canyon from Portugal talking about some work he did on that. And uh, Dr. Bohr mentioned that you were also working on something. Can you give listeners some some thoughts about how important ventilation appears to be during the sleeping hours? Well, um, what we found is that uh, when we did measurements in different rooms in, in houses, um, the um, your um, chances of being exposed to low ventilation rates are about uh, between five and ten times higher in your bedroom than in the other spaces. And that is partly because you spend more time there, but also because bedrooms are often badly ventilated. And that then has to do with um, uh, different factors. If there's not a ventilation system, uh, so you're just relying on infiltration, let's say, in your bedroom, then um, you usually have, uh, like in a parent's bedroom, um, a quite high number of people for the amount of floor space. So you would actually need a lot of ventilation. But uh, since, uh, yeah, there's only one wall, let's say, and uh, the infiltration is not enough for that. And another part is if there is a mechanical ventilation system, lots of people tend to turn it down during the night because uh, of noise issues or draft issues. So um, there is this contradiction between the fact that when you're sleeping, uh, well, you're constantly in the same room, quite enclosed space, so you would need a good ventilation there, but there's some counter incentives to have good ventilation in your bed. Um, and, and people are usually not really aware of that, except when they get up, then they almost universally, in, and we've seen that in, in studies in different countries, open the windows because then they realize that the air quality is not that great in their bedroom. Uh, but of course, then they have just spent eight hours in, in, that, in those conditions. <laughs> I, I noticed there were a few papers on um, evaluation of the the contaminants in different types of facilities like hotels. Um, any? Did you see any patterns there? Um, uh, Brandon, any thoughts? Not too much no. that I recall. Um, I think this is a interesting. Oh yeah, go ahead. As we pointed out, this is one area I think for future research and in looking at these emission dynamics and exposures across many different types of sleep microenvironments, ranging from NICUs to hospitals to tents. Now you sleep in a tent. Tent. A lot of these tents are heavily laden with chemical flame retardants. That might be an interesting exposure. Dynamic, uh, and then dormitories. So y'all will talk about multiple people in the bedroom. And on a lot yep. of college campuses here, we have two. You know, you even have three students sleeping in one small dormitory. You know, how does that affect their 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 health, their sleep quality, potentially their 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 performance in school? I mean, I think that's an interesting area as well. Yeah. 
there is one instance that I know of, and it's only tangentially uh, related to indoor air quality, but um, there is this British hotel chain called Premier Inn, and they have um, a good night or money back guarantee. So um, they redesigned, they have, they have uh, custom-made ventilation systems because they are very much aware of the noise level at which point people start to complain. And so they have bespoke ventilation systems to be below those, um, those noise levels and still be able to provide enough fresh air during, uh, during a night. So it is something that is emerging, but like Brandon is saying, there, there's still a lot of things that are just uncharted and that, that we need some good research uh, to, to bring it to light, let's say. You know, I noticed quite a few mentions of flame retardants in, um, in the literature. And, you know, I, I assume that's because it has been a topic of, you know, interest here recently. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a concern, especially with very young children. I'm wondering, um, were there any particular types of, you know, or, or was it in mattresses more often, pillows more often? What type of pillow was it? You know, uh, maybe you wouldn't think it would be in a feather pillow, but I don't know. What, what type of patterns did you see with respect to flame retardants? It seemed to be predominantly added to polyurethane foam-based products. And in, in our literature review, we summarized some data on the identification and quantification of different types of flame retardants and different types of bedding products. Uh, the one group from Duke University, they looked at a mattress pad foam, uh, futon foam, pillow foam, and they have a variety of different uh, organophosphate and polybrominated dibenyl ether-based flame retardants, uh, varying concentrations. Uh, I think that's well established, and, and now in California, they do have a new law where any product that has a chemical flame retardant has to have a label stating that. So that's a very useful thing for the consumer. Uh, if they're going to buy a crib mattress or a pillow, at least they'll have some insight does that product contain flame retardants or not. Um, there's much less data on the actual emission rates of flame retardants from mattresses or any real foam-based product. I think there's only one study that has looked at that. And I know my former group at the University of Texas at Austin may be doing some work on that right now. Uh, but so we know the stuff is there, how much of it is getting into the air. We have much less knowledge in that area. And I think that's incredibly important to mechanistically link the product and, and the source to the exposure. So that's an area for sure for future research. But one of the things that did came up um, during the you know, reading through all the literature was that um, the rationale for adding flame retardants to whatever uh, fabrics in, in a sleep environment, at one point we found a paper that uh, talked about uh, flame retardant, well, suggested that they had been uh, added to children's pajamas, uh, for example. Uh, as a safety measure, let's say, um, so that they can be found anywhere. But um, since most people have stopped smoking in bed, um, 
since you know smoking has become less popular, um, the chances of you um, getting hurt or dying from uh, uh, from a fire in your bed are much smaller um, compared to the risk that you take to uh, uh, due to exposure to flame retardants. So. Yeah, a practical question that arises from this is why do we have all these flame retardants in a in an environment uh, where we're that exposed to them? Uh, Great. Can I just add that there's there's a very good uh, set of articles from the Chicago Tribune called "Playing with Fire on Flame Retardants in Upholstery Products," and I think I'd rec if you're if that's something that somebody is interested, I'd recommend to to check that out and, re and read what they have published and, and done research on. And they talked a lot about big tobacco and the chemical industry and number of issues there. Yep, definitely. Guys, I, we're running a little short on time, but there's one, one thing that caught my eye, and that was a, a section on unreacted isocyanates. I, I didn't realize that was an issue in bedding. Um, but maybe one of you could explain to listeners why that was in there and, and what you found. Yeah, so there, in the production of the polyurethane foam, there could be some excess toluene diisocyanate that's left, and, and we detected that in some of the crib mattresses, and another study published a while back identified these unreacted isocyanates. Uh, so it's going to be left over as a residual of the production process of the foam. And, and certainly something to be aware of. We've not looked at the emission rates, and I don't believe anybody has for mattresses. Uh, and they are influenced by moisture levels. So or the amount of the toluene, toluene diisocyanate is influenced by moisture levels. So, And that was another important topic you had here toward the end uh, of the paper was um, on the cloud effect number one around people, body movements, but also the impact of body temperature and sweating on chemical emissions from mattresses. And I know my wife always complained about the uh, foam mattress we had, you know, may, you sweat a little bit more and it sounds like that's the type you really don't want to sweat more on. And that's true, and that was actually a point I was trying to make before I well, my connection failed uh, earlier. Um, that relates back to um, you know what can you do in use. So um, moisture is a really important component um, for emissions, but also, for example, for um, the conditions for house dust mites to thrive in. So if you can reduce the amount of moisture in your mattress. That's a really good thing, and so a practical thing to do is um, open up your bedding uh, during the day so that it can have you know uh, some solar radiation shining on it to dry it out um, and to air to the surroundings. Um, and uh, uh, Mikal, uh, who is also a co-author on on uh, our review, uh, did some work on that and showed that it does really make a difference uh, in terms of house dust mites. Um, and house dust mite allergen if you um, allow your mattress to dry out during the day 
uh, versus you know making your bed like your grandma told you to uh, all these years ago. There you go. Good excuse not to make your bed, huh? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I wondered before we go. The, the final question is first to to talk a little bit about any conclusions that you reached and, and future direction. But before you do, you mentioned one of your co-authors, and I always like to ask that you know if you guys could just point out who else helped you with this paper. The Dr. Mikhail Pilot. Just like Yella, he, he was a visiting scholar to the University of Texas. And so Yella and I worked with him on, on different research projects. And then we also have Attila Novoselic and Ying Zhu. They're both professors at the University of Texas that we both have worked with. And I would say a lot of these efforts, though, were initiated by Rich Corsi. I think he really was the one that kind of pushed forward research on sleep and indoor air quality. And, you know, I think he should be acknowledged for that for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And let's finish with this, guys. What What is the, you know, the main conclusion we should pull away from the, the, the research that you've done and the literature uh, gathering that you've done here? And then what are the main things we need to work on and learn more about in the future? We'll start with you, Dr. Bohr. Well, I think, you know, like with any topic, there's so much more research you can do and so many more research questions that come up. Um, you know, I think we need to have a stronger foundation on the link between exposure to these different indoor air pollutants while sleeping, uh, health outcomes, and sleep quality. And I think the latter is something that's quite interesting. There's a few studies on that, the sleep quality and how that's affected by CO2 levels, traffic pollution, and so forth. But really establishing some firm foundation on, you know, what are these exposures of the, of the infant or the child to these flame retardants? How is that affecting their health? And how do these exposures during sleep compare to exposures during the rest of the day to different types of pollutants? Yeah. And uh, Dr. LaVerge. Yeah, well, I was actually going to say the same thing, but there's another thing. <laughs> so I think that's really important. Uh, another thing that is um, important is um, the the really uh, mechanical side to it. Like, um, okay, now we know the exposure routes, the type of exposures that it, that occur. Are there practical ways that we can um, reduce these exposures? You know, mitigate the problem in in simple um, simple ways, uh, and and that goes from um, research on the effectiveness of, of cleaning, uh, different types of cleaning, on positioning of ventilation systems. There's a small section on the uh, in the paper on um, proposals that have been done for personalized ventilation. So ventilation integrated in in the bed environment. I think that's maybe a bit of a, a technical approach to it, but um, that type of research into mitigation strategies uh, combined with what Brandon mentioned, uh, better understanding of the impact of um, uh, the environment uh, of the bed on, on your health and on your sleep quality are the two main things to focus on in the future. You know, I'm glad you bring up the, the mitigation 
practices. And I, for some reason, when I was going through this, um, I didn't see that section on the ventilation, but I have seen advertisements for that type of thing. Where, you know, they've got a little blower motor and it kind of blows up under your covers and, you know, you filter the air and you provide some ventilation. I, I, for some people, that may be a um, an option, but obviously there's the cost. Sure. Well, one, th one thing that is... Go ahead, Brian. Uh, one thing that also our group at Texas looked at was these portable air purification units and positioning, and positioning them close to the bed, like on a nightstand. And these are HEPA-based filtration units, and, and they seem to be quite effective at reducing levels of particulate matter in the breathing zone. So that would be something that would be a little bit less invasive than a personalized ventilation system that you can just buy a air cleaner, position it close to the bed, keep that there in your bedroom every day. Uh, that, that's an economical option, I would, would suppose. Do you have any suggestions for the noise that that creates? I mean, that's that's the one um, yeah. thing that people kind of say, well, you know, it's a little noisy. Is, are there any tips you can give people on that? So there, there is one air purifier that I know of that, that is rated at a pretty low noise level. I think it was like less than 60 decibels or something, the, the motor. So that would seem to be lower than some of the other units out there. Uh, you know, I, for example, I sleep with a fan typically, and, you know, that has some noise associated with it. It's kind of like a white noise in a way. So I'm for sure that somebody, some research topic somebody could look at, the noise effects of portable air purifiers, but I don't think they're that which, bad. Bert, which unit personal. was it that had the 60 decibel? Uh, it's a product called Myla, M-I-L-A in uh shanghai they actually have an interesting thing where they sell multiple units and and from what they have told me like everybody keeps one in the bedroom this is shanghai where it's heavily polluted but hmm. very interesting well gentlemen thanks so much for joining us and, and you know for the, the hard work you put into that paper i thought it was excellent um this is radio joe hughes saying thanks again to this week's guests Dr. Brandon Board, Dr. Yellow LaVerge, um, Brandon now at Purdue, uh, and um, Dr. LaVerge out of the Ghent University um, in, in, in Belgium, right? I got that right. Okay, sometimes I, I had you in Netherlands there for a little bit, but now I've got you in Belgium. But uh, <laughs> thanks, thanks for joining us, guys. It was much appreciated. Thank you for having us on. Thanks, Joe. All right. And I also want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. He'll be back next Friday. Next Friday, we've got the restoration lawyer on uh, Ed Cross. Uh, we're going to have Pete Consigli in. We're going to continue to follow up on Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma. And now the most recent one was the Maria. Uh, unfortunately, the gentleman I had on last week, uh, Addison Christian in St. Croix, he, they got hit pretty good with the most recent one. Hopefully uh, things are coming around a little better for them at the moment. And of course, Puerto Rico really got hit hard. We'll continue to follow that. I uh, also want to thank John. you got to have faith at the controls, and most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. We'll be back next Friday at noon for the next live episode of IAQ Radio. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening. 
Thank you.